Welcome to season two of Bear It All, where we share the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between about biliary atresia. If your child is facing a life-saving liver transplant, please reach out to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, or CODA. The CODA crew are looking forward to learning more about your family's biliary atresia journey. CODA works with families to lessen the financial burden of a life-saving transplant and support is provided at absolutely no cost. Please call CODA today at 1-800-366-2682 or go to coda.org forward slash get started to learn more about how they can help. Welcome, and thank you for joining us to another episode of Bear It All. I'm Jen Lau, president of Bear. I have a very special guest with us, Dr. Ahmad Anudi, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at UTSW, but he also has a very special side to him as well. He is also a biliary atresia patient and liver transplant recipient. I got to meet him at our bear symposium in Chicago this past May. Ahmad, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you very much, Jen, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So I just want to like dive right in and discuss, you know, what everybody wants to know, what all of our listeners and patients and families like to hear. They like to hear other families' stories, other patient stories, um, what their journey was like, how life was afterwards for transplant for them. If you don't mind sharing with us tonight about your biliary atresia journey leading to transplant. Sure, definitely. I'll I'll try to make it as brief as possible. It's consuming like 17 years at least of my life. It's okay. It's, it's, it's even till now, but the main crux of it is 17 years. I was born in Beirut, Lebanon in August 22, 1996. And back then there wasn't really knowledge about biliary atresia. So I was born jaundice and a physician who trained in the U.S. had some speculation as why I'm getting jaundiced and having a colic stools. And eventually I went to, underwent a high dust scan at 10 weeks after much resistance from my parents. And it somewhat suggested biliary atresia. So the question was, how do we get the kazai done? The pediatric surgeon back home stated that he can do the operation. He's never done it before. So he has to open the book and do it by the book. And we can schedule it for 11 weeks. So what my dad did was that he did not like this answer. And he kept asking around. Eventually, he was led to a Lebanese-American physician who came to visit family in the week of my operation, who's a pediatric surgeon who specializes in Kazai. It happened to be that he's in Lebanon visiting, and my dad was able to grab a hold of him via phone, and he agreed to do the surgery pro bono without even meeting my parents. So he went in, he did the surgery, and he left. And my dad caught him in the elevator, and he didn't accept to take any money. And so the first time he met my parents was after doing the surgery, and they've never met again. So I lived a relatively healthy life. I had my kazai late, which is at 11 weeks, but this is because of the gap of knowledge. And despite all this, I lived a fine life. I had a lot of infections, mainly croup yearly. I used to be hospitalized six to seven to eight, if not more times a year. 
but I didn't have a lot of biliary complications. Most of my personal complications were infectious or breathing related. So I had a lot of issues with asthma, shortness of breath, hypoxemia. My parents, especially my mom, really took care of me. They made sure I had a healthy diet. I worked out. I had some normal routine in my life and they pushed me in school and in my academics. And by the age of 15, I was living a relatively normal life, completely ignoring bilgeretresia. And I remember I did a school project. I just had my scarf for the kazai. This was how I was aware that I had something that really no one understood. And one day we had like an extracurricular thing for a school project and I wrote about bilgeretresia and it was the first time I learned about it at 15. And I learned that most patients need transplant. And I talked to my parents about this and they told me, everyone says you're doing fine, so please forget the issue of the transplant. I remember this day because a year later I was told I needed a transplant. Oh, and, okay. ha- and how this came to be was that um, within this year, I started developing shortness of breath and low oxygen levels, very low. I started running in school, let's say for sports, and my oxygen would be 70, 75, and I would come to faint or pass out even at standing. The biggest issue I had was communicating this. So I was healthy. I was a big kid. I was around six feet back then, which is very lucky for me. No one was convinced that I was sick. Like you're healthy. Okay. You have shortness of breath. You're complaining. I remember a couple of teachers told me I'm having anxiety or panic attacks from exams and stress, even though I was a very high performer at school, which just pissed me off. I used to argue a lot with these teachers and I used to yell at them, no, I'm not complaining just to complain. You can see my exams, my scores. I'm very happy. It just, I don't feel well. There's something wrong. Don't tell me it's in my head. I'm sorry. I mean, you bring up, you bring up something very real for a lot of our patients, especially those that go through school, like post Kasai. How did that make you feel? I know you said you were like really pissed off. What is that like to go through school, chronic illness like that and not really being heard oh uh, look i have i have a lot of positives a lot of negatives one of my negatives is that i as a teenager i used to get very angry i'm in control with that and i was a very high performer just to preface this i used to be someone in class who didn't open his mouth who raised his hand who made sure to study and follow the teacher's instructions and my attitude was always described as pleasant and focused however whenever my personal health was questioned. I did not take that lightly. I did not accept anyone to tell me that it's in your head. My parents were by my side, so I always pushed back. I remember I was once pulled out of class and there was a teacher trying to convince me that it's my head. I looked at her and I told her, I'm an excellent student. I've never had an issue. I've never failed an exam, let alone gotten a C. Why are you telling me it's in my head? There's something wrong. You be your own advocate. Exactly. And I think a big aspect is teaching kids how to fight for themselves. And I was aware of my health. I knew I had biliary I didn't understand it, but I knew it had something to do that my liver wasn't doing doing its job properly. And thus, I didn't take my situation lightly. And while I don't remember the Kazai phase, I do remember a childhood from the ages of one year to 10 years constantly in hospitals Mm -hmm. or 11 or 12. I'll tell you, I had a couple of years during my teenage life that were really free of issues. And these were very blessed years. But I do remember my childhood, my croup attacks, my strep glomerulonephritis. So I knew that I was prone to a lot of things. And so whenever someone questioned me, I'd I did not take that lightly. So, sorry, I know you were kind of like giving us a timeline here. Um, and I, I just, I felt that that was something that, you know, because um, we hear it a lot from our patients and families too, is, 
is, you know, teaching their kids as they grow up, like how to advocate for themselves in those types of situations. So thank you for sharing kind of, you know, what you had gone through with that continuing on. So at 16, then you were told you're going to need a liver transplant. Yes. So I remember this very vividly. I, I was suffering with hypoxemia for a while and in April of 2013, I developed the scarlet fever, which was very bad. So I got to be hospitalized. And during my admission, they decided to run a full workup with CTs, a bubble test, pulmonary function test. And they realized that I do have hepatopulmonary syndrome, which means I need a transplant. And this is due to my cirrhotic liver, which is the history of biliary atresia. So how do you get a transplant in a country that doesn't have a transplant program? They do they are transplant surgeons, but there's no existing real program in a hospital. A liver comes in and the hospital that's available, if a surgeon can do it, they do it. There's not like programs here. So I wait, I was put on a wait list, but they were doing like a liver a year, not more. I kept on waiting and my prognosis was getting worse and worse. And being and while on the wait list, I was continuously on an oxygen tank, going to school with an oxygen tank, getting honestly bullied because of the oxygen tank. So I had a lot of mean comments, but the good thing, I have some good friends who stood by my back and uh, I never took those comments lightly. I would either react <laughs> by yelling back or <laughs> threatening people. <laughs> and so, so we're learning a new side of you, Dr. Anudi. <laughs> so I was fighting back and I wasn't taking the comments lightly and eventually they stopped. But it's just difficult to go to school with an oxygen tank and being tired all the time. And I, <laughs> I'd like to bring in a silly story. So one of the things with hepatopulmonary syndrome is platypnea. So when you lie backwards, your oxygen gets better. And you know, schools have these wooden chairs. And so the second day of I'm back in school, a new leather chair that reclines completely back rolls in. It was a gift from a dad's friend so that I could sit in school and if I get worse I could lie back and this chair was the talk of the whole school <laughs> because it was the best chair in the school and I was sitting on a huge leather chair in the back of the class <laughs> and whenever I used to miss school they used to steal this chair between the students my friends mainly <laughs> so it was just <laughs> it was honestly the more I think about it the more I realize it was just a ridiculous phase of just a series of weird events <laughs> Well, that was one that was amazing that your dad's friend did that for you. And two, I, I bet you you had a lot of jealous classmates at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, eventually I stopped going. I went for like a month and then the last month I took it from home and I heard the chair was uh, constantly circulated un un until the administration had to step <laughs> in and remove the chair from the classes. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept tabs on that chair. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this cool chair at school now yeah. you're on the trans you're on a, a transplant list per se tell us a little bit like how how did that work it's a different country right so yeah it, it's similar to the US I had a full workup I had my labs my PFDs my dental work my echoes and everything and the transplant team met me whether it's so there wasn't really a team there was a general hepatologist who was following up with me who's been great from the start followed up with me after transplant and there was a transplant surgeon too to be honest and they weren't really hopeful because of the hepatopulmonary syndrome and my deteriorating case but it was really anxiety ridden in a country that doesn't have a transplant despite being very high up on the list and being a meld exception patient I just was 
constantly waiting to hear. And the turning point I remember was when my mom heard that they did perform one transplant during my six-month wait in Lebanon. And at that, that point that my mom and dad really started, especially my dad, looking for options outside of the country mm-hmm. because they felt that the longer they waited, the, wor- the worse I was getting, and that sure. was not an option for them. So once they decided that, I decided that I want to finish school. So I was very resistant of traveling, and the school thankfully let me do my finals at home, and that's when I traveled. I remember vividly that on June 22, my dad called me like, you're done finals now, let's travel. I told him, just give me three days to get a couple of things in order. So he did give me three days. And we traveled to a country where we don't know anyone. We've talked to the surgeon on the phone, but there's a language barrier. We didn't really understand him, even though he's trained in the US for a year or two. And we traveled with just the hope of having something going on. And we did, I took my oxygen tank and we traveled and we took a detour because not all flights offer a medical option. So I'm traveling a commercial flight, but I have my tank and I need oxygen on flight. I can't stop. So we had to take a big detour, taking a trip of six, seven hours to expand it to 20 just to have the option to during my wait and during my flight to have oxygen available 24-7. So we did travel, and once we reached, the, that's a whole bag of worms, can of worms that I really don't want to, I can go endlessly into, but the language barrier, the cultural barrier, not knowing anyone. And I remember the first day we met the surgeon, my dad stormed into the OR room. So we went to the hospital, and we just knew the surgeon's name, uh, Dr. Ali Malik Hosseini, who's God sent, and my dad decided to ask a taxi cab if he knew him. And turns out the first taxi cab we asked did know the hospital and did know the surgical unit. So he took us there. And my dad just entered and he started asking just his name. Eventually, one person to another, one per- we understood that he's in an OR. It wasn't clear to us where the OR enters or where the OR not. So what my dad used to do was wait for a nurse or someone to badge in and they follow them. And so he saw a nurse badge into the OR and he ran behind her. And we started healing, getting behind us. And we continued to run in until we saw him. We had a picture of him. And he let us in. His, the first consult was with him was in the OR, wait, OR surgical waiting room. So where the surgeons used to sit between ORs. And it's that special room. We sat with him there. And he was very kind to us. And he was a bit concerned. He's like, you've waited too long. Why are you on oxygen? You have very bad fingers and saturation but he said we'll do our best and they assigned a driver from the hospital who really in three days did my full liver workup outside the hospital and i was listed there your dad's like a hero to me i have to say this right now like i'm picturing i'm getting this vivid picture uh and i'm putting a cape on him as well like superman because i can only imagine if like if myself or my husband would have stormed in dr sabrina's or asking for consult um i that is like wow um you know i i cannot believe i mean he just did anything and everything to make sure you were seen yeah yeah my parents uh, the issue was my mom was just as a big of a hero but my mom had to stay back home with my siblings so it was my dad alone with me in iran and my dad just a bit of a background has been has his own couple of companies back in Lebanon, a very tough and corrupt country with a lot of issues. 
and sure. he's really strong-headed and determined and he was willing to move heaven and earth just to so this was the first time ever in my whole life that i remember my dad took a day off so the trip was the first time my dad took a vacation day and and he moved heaven and earth just to make sure I got I was advocated for and he didn't take no from other than answer for anyone. And honestly, there was a bit of a higher power working miracles for us because the people set in our path were just amazing people who were more than willing to help and support. That is amazing. That really is amazing. So he busts into the OR. The surgeon sees you. Now what? <laughs> now what? He 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 gives yeah. us the driver and he tells us start doing the tests. We want to see if you're physically capable of undergoing a transplant. They told me the biggest concern for them was my lungs are definitely poor. I won't pass the lung test. But if my heart is poor, then they can't do the transplant because that would just mean that I have nothing that guarantees them that I will pick up properly. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, everything cleared out. My heart was good. My other vitals were good. There were no complaints. And it was just a funny, I'll give you one story, which I have a picture of. So the driver we were with, who was taking us these three days from one test to another, is affiliated with the hospital. So one day I was sitting in the back of the cab, of his his car, not the cab, and he had a cooler next to me. And we were debating with him what this cooler was. I thought it was a liver that they're running some tests. Turns out he sometimes carries organs that need to be transplanted. So I'm sitting behind of the cab and there's a cooler and there's a liver and he opened it up to put some blood tests in it, blood labs in the fluid (laughs) and take it to the hospital. (laughs) And he's not like detouring or anything. He had to take us to the hospital and we were all on the same way. So I sat there for like 20 minutes with a fully viable liver that's going to someone next to me in the back while I'm having my workup. And I have a picture with me smiling with a selfie with the liver. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That, how did that, I mean, that had to have been a little, I I don't know if I needed, if I needed to have a transplant and I was sitting in the back of of a taxi cab with an organ next to me. I mean, that, I don't even know how I would respond or react. (laughs) <laughs> my dad was like let's take it and go <laughs> right <laughs> nobody thought right <laughs> no nobody thought <laughs> no goodness oh yeah yeah we had a lot of lots of series of weird events because of the cultural barrier but um yeah so i cleared my uh, checklist and i was waitlisted and the first time i got a call was if i'm not mistaken 17 days after i was put on the transplant waitlist so you can imagine waiting from april to june in Le- lebanon with no call end of june so i'll say start of july first of april to start of july but coming the, another country and having a call within 17 days was just miraculous Turns out it's a red, it's a false flag and the liver wasn't compatible. So it's at that point that we panicked a bit and we didn't have insurance. So we needed to pay up front. And that was a whole nother issue of getting money into the country we are in and how to transport it. And my parents had limited savings. We had someone who's Lebanese and who's of the other nationality who had accounts in both countries. So my dad transferred his life savings, which was around 160K. And he told this guy to transfer them to the country abroad and we'll pick them up. So he did, but he told them that I'll pick a driver to get them from my account and he'll come to you. That was on a Saturday within a couple of hours. 
Saturday rolls around. We're waiting. We assumed to be till the afternoon. An hour, another third, fourth, fifth pass by, and no one knocks, no one calls, and we can't reach the guy anymore. We thought the money is gone. And oh. my dad wakes up Sunday morning. He's like, son, I'm sorry, but we lost the money, I guess. Sunday afternoon comes, and someone knocks on the hotel door. Turns out it's the driver. He had to drive like 12 hours to get the money. And he had the money, 160K in a trash bag and transporting it across the country in a beat up old Renault. <laughs> so, and we counted the money and that is the day my dad took and put the first payment for the transplant just to, just to cover the previous medical expenses. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the driver's kind of a hero too now. <laughs> the driver's insane. The driver yeah. has 160K in a trash bag in a beat up old car traveling a third world country and i'm i'm like how didn't you get robbed right like i mean your life is literally in in the driver's hands uh in that trash bag so to speak yeah <laughs> I, it, it was jennifer it was a surreal experience so i'm sitting in the hotel with an oxygen tank in bed because i can't move that much and my dad and the driver are just taking wads of cash out of the bag and counting them and I'm in a hotel in God knows what country. And I'm like, who lives such an experience like this? Oh, my goodness. It's like an HBO special, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my wife says. She's always uh, trying to push me to get it, my story televised. Or... Right? Like, knock on Hollywood's door at some point. Because, my goodness, you've gone through so much. Yeah. I mean, you haven't even transplanted at this point. So yeah, no. um, and you, you and your family have gone through so many obstacles. Now, I guess then what's, you know, transplants next, right? I yeah, mean, we had the transplant the next day. I got the call and I got my transplant. And I was within, it went really well. It was a complicated surgery, but they were extremely skilled. So, you know, kids that undergo it, because I have a lot of adhesions and a lot of issues, but they were able to get in, get out within seven hours and a half, which is a good time back in 2013. It's a really good time. Yeah, so they were able, to, they were really excellent. And they got the new liver in, mm -hmm. and I was transferred. So I got my transplant on August 6, 2013. And I was discharged, if I recall correctly, either August 20 or August 21, because I celebrated my birthday, August 22, in the hotel. And so you, okay, so <laughs> August 20th, um, you have a birthday coming up in a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. And you just celebrated then your your liverversary, transplant anniversary, whatever we're calling them these days. That's amazing. You're 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, so it's, it was amazing. It was, and I was just asking them if hospital, if by any chance I could get out before my birthday. I just don't want to celebrate it in a hospital. And I did get out. And I had a horrible, uh, the, one of the fellows there who, who was really sweet and he was Lebanese. He got me a cake to the hotel, but he, no sugar, no sweets, no anything. So it was really just eating a kitchen sponge, but. <laughs> it's the thought that counts, right? It's the thought that counts. <laughs> yeah, I was really happy. And um, I got to travel back home 1st of September because I was also very excited. I had just a small milestone. My baby brother, who was five at the time, 
his birthday was September 8th, and I really wanted just to be there to just have a normalcy to his life. We did celebrate that. Unfortunately, by September 10, I started developing acute rejection, and I was re-hospitalized in Lebanon. They gave me IV corticosteroids, but those failed, and I had to travel back abroad to be managed on serolimus and a new cocktail of medications. That's mid-September of 2013. So at that point, I was on 41 pills a day and five of five medications of which were immunosub four or five. There were tacrolimus, serolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. Yeah, four medications that were immunosuppressants, but all were at the very highest doses. Yeah, so I stayed back abroad after coming back to Lebanon for another two months to manage the rejection. And then I went back home in November. This was a big issue, and this is something people tend to ignore, is that me and the donor were CMV EBV negative, but being on 41 pills a day and being completely immunosuppressed, it seems that I caught both CMV and EBV. CMV showed up first, and I was put on Valgan cyclovir or Valcite, and EBV showed up later, but EBV showed up in the end of November, and it's at that point that it really took a turn for the worst because EBV appeared as symptoms of severe abdominal pain, diarrhea, and weight loss of 30 pounds in two weeks. I couldn't, I remember very vividly those times because anytime I have a stomach pain, my mom panics. I had this a severe stomach pain to the point that I couldn't hold down any form of food, whether it's solids or liquids. To get checked in and to get seen, that was mid-November, took another two weeks. And this is where I lost the 30 pounds. And by December, I had a colonoscopy that showed PTLD. So for within the first 10 centimeters of the sigmoid colon, they saw four, four bleeding and postulating ulcers. So this so, was the explanation of the pain. So for some of our listeners just in the biliary atresia stage, either pre-Kasai, post-Kasai, not in, in, in the transplant journey quite yet, can you um, take a moment and just maybe tell the differences between CMV um, and EBV, which is the Epstein- um, bar virus mm. for those that, mm. that don't know. Um, and then PTLD, which stands for the post-transplant lymphoma disorder. Can you kind of just, you know, just brief yeah. Like, yeah, couple definitely. sentences um, for our, our patients and families listening? So CMV and EBV are family of viruses and they're, they fall on the herpes viruses, but they're both latent viruses. 90% of the population, I think, has them something like that, a very high percentage was 80%. And they're usually not dangerous, but they become dangerous in transplanted patients who are immunosuppressed because catching them or having them latent while you're immunosuppressed triggers them to activate. And the issue with CMV can cause mild symptoms, but it also increases the risk of rejection and biliary injury, CMV on its own. So it's a big concern and it could eventually lead to graft failure if left untreated and rejection occurs. So you need to treat it. EBV, on the other hand, is related to a series of symptoms and the worst of which is a form of lymphoma, which is non-Hodgkin's. So in the case of PTLD. So catching EBV is also a big concern because you worry it develops into the lymphoma. And I'll just like to point out that catching them is not as common if you're you're not a latent person. So primary infection is rare, especially if you're isolated. 
which I was except for the travel, which is my biggest fear of how I caught them. Mm. And PTLD in liver is rare. It's like 1.2 to 2.4% in all transplanted livers a year. So it's not a common occurrence, but I was very unlucky and it has several variations. I really caught one of the worst variations, which was monoclonic B-cell PTLD. And it was within four months of my transplant. But I, I want to just say some something here that my transplant journey was rough. My biliary atresia journey was relatively smoother than most. Mm -hmm. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. I know that it can be much worse. So it's not a one size fits all. You never know. Up until the transplant, I lived a fine life, especially in my teenage years. I didn't expect transplant to be this rough on me and it was really rough. So from, you can say from August till December, I had a transplant, I had rejection, I caught CMV, then I caught EBV, then I caught non-Hodgkin's lymphoma through EBV. So it was a very bad process. This is not a one-size-fits-all. Right. It's not like I'm making parents more concerned about their kids' transplant. No, that's not the case. Right. Some kids have the transplant and do well, and that's it. Right. No, and you and that does bring up a very, very um, good point. And even though you know we're we're educating our listeners um, as to some of these bumps in the road that that you did have, that you know, like you had said, it you know not everybody's transplant journey is the same, just like not everybody's BA journey is the same either. Each kid is very different. Um, and you know, like you also had said, these are very rare, but can happen post transplant, but not for those, you know, like not for, uh, parents to be, you know, all of a sudden worried and concerned, like, oh, is this going to happen once they transplant? Because everyone is different. So that you bring up a very, a very um, good point. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So we've hit some bumps in the road post-transplant. When, when did you stop hitting the speed bumps, so to speak? PTLD, the <laughs> non-Hodgkin's. So once I got diagnosed with PTLD in November, in the, uh, December, early December, I de- uh, symptoms started in November. Uh, I was treated with rituximab immunotherapy for four doses, and I did really well on them. I had a couple of relapses, and I had a very severe neutropenia for a couple of months, which was the count was 30, 40, 50. But I took some growth colony stimulating hormones and injections in my legs that I used to take, mm-hmm. and I stayed like concerned with PTLD from. December 2013 till fall 2014, but it wasn't continuous. So I had 10 total doses of rituximab, four initial and two by two by two. And I've been in remission ever since fall 2014. I've done well. So I've had some issues during my undergrad years and my medical school years, but they're nothing compared to what I previously had, like infections, some hospital issues, I had another brief episode of shortness of breath and hypoxemia that was resolved, but everything was mild at that point. So you that kind of brings us into a really good next topic here and segue of medical school. You know, really kind of what got you interested in going into medical school, wanting to become a doctor? Was there like a pivotal moment in your life that you were like, this is what I want to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that journey and that decision-making. Yeah, yeah. So during my teenage years, before really the brunt of the transplant and bilirubin hit me, I was interested either in mechanical engineering or medicine. So I love 
working with my hands. It's an obsession of mine. But having the transplant and BA was really the turning point. And it wasn't that the journey itself, it was the mess of issues that happened, a lot of which were maybe complications that are unavoidable, but many of which were issues. I'll give some examples. IV pricks that led to torn arteries or veins, uh, butchered spinal taps. I even, which is very painful, I had the uh, catheter removed incorrectly, which led to a tear. So I've had a lot of dumb issues that resulted in me thinking like, this isn't really acceptable, especially taking a year to diagnose me with hepatopulmonary syndrome. I know Lebanon doesn't have its experience and I don't fault anyone because of this. At the end of the day, you need experience to know how to diagnose someone. If you've not seen the case, you can't diagnose. I think that all these issues led to one thing in my mind, that if I pull through this, I want to give back. I want to make sure that people don't end up having the same struggles like me. I don't want to see parents like my parents again. It was really heartbreaking, especially at the final stages of PTLD, seeing my parents really tired and having somewhat decreased hope. And just didn't want others to experience that. And I took a decision that I want to do medicine, which was met with a huge amount of resistance by the medical team back home, the medical team abroad, and my parents all called me insane because I'm immunosuppressed. I had a very rough transplant journey. My medication didn't decrease to like two years after transplant. So everyone's telling me that this is absolutely insane. We don't know how you're going to do in medicine and the sense of my immunity and my resistance to infections. And you're just putting yourself in the fire itself. It's like we tell you to be careful and wear a mask and you're telling us, okay, I want to go deal with infections. But I was stubborn, very stubborn. And I thought, I believed that I want... You know, I don't say this much, but I wanted my my journey to have a purpose. Because if if not for me choosing this career, I felt that what was the purpose of all this? Right. <laughs> oh, and and I think and you just bring such an amazing. I mean, you have an amazing experience that not a lot of doctors can can. Uh, really, you know, to their patients and families, you know, if they're treating kids with biliary atresia and liver transplant, and if they haven't, you know, they haven't gone through that, they've studied it, they've read it. I mean, but there still is something true, holds true to when you go through it and you're able to study it and research it and treat others. It, it's just a, it, it's, it's different um, it puts you at, in, at a different level, I think. I I don't think I'm better than anyone. I think it's just oh. that uh, it's just that the it's a I think it's a privilege. And let me explain why. I think that my experience, first of all, makes me passionate about my field. So I wake up every day and I suffer some health issues, and I take my medication, and I see my scars, and I remember what I'm doing. I'm following a career path. What for? And it just keeps me motivated, especially in a field that's really tiresome and really demanding like medicine. And just having these constant reminders makes me really motivated and passionate and happy. And at the same time, I feel that with patients and their families, I truly understand. I understand how annoying every pinprick is. I understand how annoying the weight on the wait list is. I understand how annoying not the unknown of the future and what's going to happen next. And I just hope that I can maybe 
alleviate some of this pain. I didn't have someone to do that for me. I had a lot of questions and a lot of unknowns. And maybe, just maybe, I can be that someone that I wished I had for myself. Right. It brings it brings more empathy to to the situation, which again, you're, you're teeing me up really well here, um, through this whole thing. Um, <laughs> so what are you currently working on right now? Thing, are, is there anything that you can share that you're currently working on possibly for the biliary atresia community, liver transplant community community? Yeah. I, yeah. So, uh, we've recently published a paper in liver international on transplant outcomes of biliary atresia. We've looked at the past 12 years on what were the outcomes of patients that underwent a transplant and we stratified them by age greater and less than 12. And we also looked at variables that impacting the transplant outcomes for these patients, especially those less than 12. It was just interesting to see how successful transplant is among biliary patients compared to other cholestatic diseases. That was one point that was interesting, especially in older biliary patients. And we also saw that the split liver transplant did poorer than living donor. So what was really exciting was living donor liver transplants. It's an area that we should look at more so because it's underutilized. So this is from a clinical standpoint. I have a holistic view of BA. I think I should look at it from a clinical basic and patient advocate standpoint. So my other two works are, I'm starting a basic project on the spatial transcriptomics, which is the RNA of biliary atresia and its profile and how it looks compared to other cholestatic diseases. And I'm currently trying to write work on a patient advocacy series on biliary atresia, on helping patients understand transition of hair and managing their own health, and also getting some publications in that can just be patient-centered and patient-centered guidelines. Very cool. So you'll be sharing this with Bayer at some point, I'm sure, correct? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. All of this. In in the last couple of minutes here, I just, I wanted to um, ask you, what do you think holds in the future for Amada Nudi and for biliary atresia itself? So for myself, I'm currently applying to pediatrics residency. I hope to become a pediatric, pediatric transplant hepatologist with focus on biliary atresia. And I hope to pursue a, a physician, a career both in research, academic research, and in uh, patient advocacy. So I hope to have, a, as I said, a holistic picture of what I believe medicine, my medicine should be. As for biliary atresia, I think there's a lot going on. I'm trying now to start working in a basic lab with Dr. Natasha Corbett, who's a phenomenal MD, PhD, and pediatric surgeon. And she's really, I think they're trying to understand what truly the mechanism of biliary atresia is. And once you understand that, you can start really creating ways to treat the disease beyond just a transplant or a kazai. And I think the consortium of people now working in the field, at least, for example, at UC Southwestern, we have Dr. Georgie Bezerra, Dr. Amal Ael, Dr. Natasha Corbett, who are just really pushing, whether clinically or research-wise, to treat patients better and to understand the disease further. So I think it's going to be a couple of 
interesting years in the future. Well, and I know our patients and families definitely like to hear that because we we have been doing the same thing for many, many years in biliary atresia. And so to possibly have some new innovations on the horizon for this disease is um, music to a lot of families' ears. So I, I want to thank you for spending your time for, with me tonight, you know, sharing a personal story, because sometimes that can be hard to do. And so um, I want to thank you for that. Uh, I want to thank you for the work you are doing in biliary atresia and liver transplantation and what you are looking to do in the future as, as a parent of, of a, a BA liver transplant kid, I, I can only, you know, thank you just does not seem enough to what you and your colleagues do in this field. So um, I want to thank you for that as well. And I hope you come back for more episodes in the future, um, because this was a lot of fun tonight. I got to learn a lot um, as our listeners did. And the door is always open for more episodes for you. So I, I, I'm very grateful to be here. You've given me a platform. Yes, as you said, it's hard to share my story, especially hard on my parents. Whenever they hear it, they get teary and they get sad <laughs> and they're trying to they, that. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They every time they try their best to watch either my podcasts or conferences and they end up crying. So mm. <laughs> I understand it's, it's tough, but <laughs> I'm grateful to have this platform because if I don't share my story, then how will I be able to help those like me? That's one. And I'm grateful, very grateful, immensely grateful to you and Bear. I think the work you're doing is phenomenal. As a patient, I can say that I wish there were people like you when I was going through my journey. And I maybe I'm still on my own and developing my career, but you've done so much more. And by just being a patient advocate, you've helped so many families and their children. And so I'm just happy to be part of Bear and to be here with you today. And thank you. Thank you for everything you've done. Thanks for joining us. Join us next time as we bear it all.